In other words, both with Jesus and with Stephen, it is the lordship of Jesus Christ that is at issue. It's the claims of Jesus Christ that ultimately provokes murderous hostility. Across the world today, millions of Christians are persecuted. They face discrimination, imprisonment, displacement, and even death simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. These courageous believers are our brothers and sisters. We are in this together with them, and we need to hear their voice. Join host Sarah as we discover their stories today on Release International's Voice podcast. Stephen is well known as the first Christian martyr. His story is recorded in the New Testament in the book of Acts chapter 6 and 7. But why exactly did Stephen die and what does it mean to be a Christian martyr? On today's podcast, I'm talking to release workers Kenneth and James. We'll be discussing the story of Stephen in detail and thinking about how it can help us relate to our brothers and sisters across the world today who face the very real possibility of being killed for their faith. Welcome Kenneth and James to the podcast. It's nice to have you both back. Hello, nice to be back. Hello, good to talk to you again. You've both been on before most recently in the the May episode when we talked about adjusting to lockdown. That seems like a long, long time ago now, doesn't it? Yeah, six months seems more like six years to me. I think I've lost all track of time this year. Yeah, I think yeah, it's interesting the way that everyone continually talks about a new normal, which kind of contradicts the meaning of the word normal. But yeah, it's definitely a time to be flexible and, and ready to change your plans at short notice. <laughs> yeah. How has it affected your work at the moment, this current restrictions that we're undergoing? Because you both represent release in different parts of the UK and are involved in church engagement. How has your work changed? Yeah, it's been difficult in some ways. Um, all of the uh, regional speakers, we've been doing online speaking uh, at churches and it's it's been great to have opportunities um, to do that, either live or by producing pre-recorded talks, depending which sort of route churches have, have gone down. I would just say that all of our regional speakers continue to be available to speak um, online. And actually, I think as we've pointed out before, um, it, it's another way for us to continue to relate to how persecuted Christians have to adapt to church in difficult situations. And maybe now more than ever is the time when we need to hear their voice uh, and learn from their example of how to cope during crises and during suffering. Yeah, indeed. I mean, Christians in other lands have a lot to teach us in that regard, especially the Christians that we'll be speaking about today. Um, some of our supporters will know already that the theme of our current magazine is Christian martyrs, that is, those Christian brothers and sisters who have been killed for their faith in Jesus. And we've profiled the stories of the people we know about in Nigeria and India and Sri Lanka and several other places. So today I'd like to speak about the th this theme and specifically how we should understand it as Christians uh, because from a human perspective it's absolutely tragic and some of these stories can seem completely despairing and hopeless. But as Christians we have access to God's perspective through his word and his word should shape the way that we uh, live our lives and understand the world. So with that in mind um, I'd like to point you to one particular passage of scripture 
and talk about that. That's the story of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. Uh, Stephen, of course, was the first Christian martyr that we know about anyway. And so I was thinking that maybe there's something in this story that can help us in our thinking about what Christian martyrdom is and how we should think and respond when we see Christians who continue to be killed for their faith today. So with all that being said, Kenneth, could you tell us about Stephen? Who was he? How does he come into the story at this point in the book of Acts? Okay, well, we first meet Stephen in chapter 6, where he is mentioned as one of a group of seven Christians who are appointed to the practical task of caring for the most needy among what was a growing number of Christians in Jerusalem. We're told that this was a strategic move to free up the apostles to concentrate on preaching God's word, which is not to say that one role is more important than the other or that one role is more demeaning than the other, but there are different ways of serving God and his kingdom. Um, Anyway, despite the role he was called to, Stephen subsequently gets into a dispute with some Jews and he is brought before the Jerusalem Council where various accusations are made against him and he's given the opportunity to defend himself. James, could you tell us a bit about those accusations that were made against Stephen? Why were these things so significant? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, these kind of people that are stirred up against him, they start to see that he's saying blasphemous things against Moses and against God. Yeah, so that is the kind of first hint of, of what their problem is. They don't agree with what he's saying, and it's got something to do with what he's saying about Moses and God. And they portray that as blasphemy, uh, which is, of course, an extremely serious allegation in first century Jerusalem. Um, And then, as Kenneth said, Stephen gets taken by force to the religious council. So we're seeing that it starts to turn violent very quickly. Uh, And at that council, these false witnesses come forward and they kind of flesh out these allegations that are being made against him. Uh, They say, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So now the temple is brought into the the picture and the allegations. Uh, That's the holy place they're talking about. So you have the law and you have the temple, the two most sacred things in the whole Jewish belief system. Uh, And according to these agitators, Stephen is is speaking out against both of them. Uh, And again, in that context, that's probably the most serious crime you can imagine. Um, But then crucially, something else is added to these accusations, which I think is really key to understanding what this whole thing is about. Um, They go on to say, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So you start to see that the problem here is not really Stephen. Stephen is not just some charlatan who's who's following his own agenda and making up a new belief system. Uh, The problem for these guys is Jesus. Uh, Months after they've crucified him, he's still the problem for them. And Stephen is simply reporting Uh, What Jesus had said, he's pointing to Jesus, he's bearing testimony uh, to Jesus. Um, You know, the allegations here that we see are a distortion, they're kind of like a twisting of the facts, but they're based on something that's true in the same way that a lot of false allegations are, because Jesus did speak about the temple. He didn't ever say that he was going to destroy it, but he did say that he was going to supersede it, and that from now on he would be the meeting place between people and God. Uh, and Jesus never said that he was going to change the law, but he did say that he'd come to fulfil it, and he challenged all the extra bits that these religious leaders had added on that were actually keeping people away from God. Um, so 
on the surface, it could seem like a technical religious dispute about places and customs, but in actual fact, Stephen is raising this absolutely critical question that Jesus himself raised throughout his ministry. How can we really know the God who made us? And Stephen's answer to that question is not the temple or the law, but Jesus. And that is the thing that really gets him into trouble. So you you mentioned that Stephen is in trouble because he's a witness to Jesus. He's not just speaking off his own bat. And I guess what's interesting about this passage is that the story um, closely resembles at some points uh, the death of Jesus himself. Uh, could you expand on that for us a bit, Kenneth? Yeah, sure. And James has already um, hinted at some of those. There are some obvious points of comparison. So there are false witnesses who are marshaled against Stephen in the same way that we know false witnesses were lined up to speak against Jesus. Uh, As James mentioned, there are accusations of apparent hostility to the temple in the same way that witnesses claim Jesus had threatened to destroy the temple. But then there are the two prayers of Stephen, interestingly, at the end of the story. There is, first of all, his expression of trust in verse uh, 40, no, sorry, verse 59 of, of chapter 7, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, which kind of echoes the way Jesus commended himself to his father on the cross. And then there's Stephen's expression of mercy in the next verse. Lord, do not hold this sin against them, which again echoes Jesus' words uh, as the soldiers were crucifying him. We might almost say that in the case of Stephen, the servant follows in the footsteps of his master, as it were. But perhaps most significantly is what I might call the tipping point. You know, what was it that finally did it for Stephen, as it were, uh, before his accusers? Well, back in verse 56, uh, he, rec- he recalls or says to them that he sees this, this vision of heaven opening and Christ reigning. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And of course, Jesus made a similar proclamation at his trial when they said to him, well, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And we're told that that caused the high priest to tear his garments in rage. In other words, both with Jesus and with Stephen, it is the lordship of Jesus Christ that is at issue. It's the claims of Jesus Christ that ultimately provokes murderous hostility. Today I'm talking to release workers Kenneth and James about the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. We've heard about his background and why he was accused but keep on listening as we go on to talk about how his story relates to contemporary martyrs in the church today. So here's another question that's sometimes asked about this story. Why the big long speech in the middle? So you've got the accusations in a few verses at the end of chapter six and the stoning in a few verses at the end of chapter seven. But in between, you have about 50 verses or more where Stephen just seems to recount the whole history of Israel. What, what's that all about, James? Yeah, that is an interesting question that, that, that lots of people have asked and people have come up with different ways of responding to it. Yeah, but I think the first thing um, it shows us is that Stephen knows what he's talking about when it comes to the Old Testament. Um, you know, he's been accused of speaking against Moses and the law but by providing this kind of detailed overview of the whole of uh, Israel's history, he proves that he knows Moses and the law really very well. Um, 
But I think more specifically than that, you know, coming back to this whole issue of the temple and the accusations that have been made against him about that, um, Stephen is is pointing out that throughout Israel's entire history, God has never been confined or limited to a building in the way that they seem to think he is. You know, he points out that God first appeared to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, i.e. outside of the promised land and a long time before the temple was ever built. Um, then he goes on to talk about Joseph and how Joseph was sold into Egypt. And what do we find there? We find that God was with him in Egypt. And then he talks about Moses, that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, again, a long time before the temple and in a totally different place. And that through um, Moses, God's wonders were again seen in Egypt. And then he finally gets to David and Solomon when the temple is actually built. But even then he points out the same thing that Solomon himself had, had realised when the temple was complete, that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. So I think um, at least part of the purpose of this speech is to show um, that the temple that the people here are so concerned about was never meant to be an ultimate thing. Uh, and if they had been paying attention to the way that God had revealed himself in their own history, uh, then they would have understood that. And of course, that brings them back round to Jesus. You know, Stephen has shown that all of Old Testament history has a trajectory, that it's all pointing forward somewhere. Uh, and the temple, like so many other things, was really a signpost that, that pointed to its ultimate fulfilment, which was in Jesus. Uh, and any other view of that is just a misunderstanding of how God had always been communicating throughout his history. Uh, and then one other little point to add into that, if I might, um, a lot of commentators have pointed out that um, this is really uh, Stephen's speech is kind of like a, a way that prepares the ground for how the rest of the story of Acts is about to unfold. Um, so up until this point, we know that the church had been pretty much confined to Jerusalem uh, and they've not yet moved out to fulfil the mandate that Jesus had given them to be his witnesses also in Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, but after Stephen's death, that is exactly what starts to happen. And so it seems that Stephen's speech is kind of set up as a, a theological foundation, if you like, for this new outward movement that God has always been working at the ends of the earth, that he's never been confined to a building, that Jerusalem and the temple are not ultimate. And therefore, the church needs to get ready to move out because Jesus is the ultimate thing and he's not confined to a place or a building. Wow, I don't think I've I've ever seen that connection between what Stephen says about God not being confined to a temple and then the result of Stephen's death, which is that the church fans outwards. That's fascinating. Um, so I guess with that, some of that in mind, uh, Kenneth, do you think Stephen's death was a tragic event? <laughs> well, I suppose we could answer that yes and no. I mean, yes, in the obvious sense that any murder is tragic. And Stephen is presented here as one who is innocent, as one who is um, the victim of hostility. <clears throat> He's put through a sham trial that ends in a mob lynching. Um, yes, also in the sense that evil on this occasion seems to prevail, doesn't it? Stephen is not spared. He's not miraculously rescued in, say, the way Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were. But at the same time, that doesn't appear to be Luke's intention. Stephen's martyrdom here in chapter 7 comes as something of a climax, I think, to opposition that has been building in Jerusalem 
ever since the arrest of Peter and John back in chapter 3. So you have chapter 3, 4, 5, and now uh, Stephen in chapter 6 and 7. And that growing opposition is opposition to the gospel. It's opposition to the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. In the providence of God, Stephen's martyrdom actually leads to the spread of that gospel, which James has just touched on previously. So we read uh, in the next chapter, chapter 8, that some kind of local, localized persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. And many of the believers, and of course they most of them would have been new to the faith, are scattered, they're forced to flee. But then Luke tells us, and this is this is a wonderful verse, chapter eight, verse four, Luke tells us now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And again, we, we talked a few moments ago about comparisons between Stephen and Jesus. And here again, this echoes something about the death of Jesus himself. So, for example, on the day of Pentecost, Peter proclaimed that although on the one hand, Jesus was killed by the hands of lawless men, in other words, you could say a tragedy, a travesty of justice, he was at the same time, says Peter, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's purpose for the salvation of all who will believe. So I think as we look at these stories, there's tremendous encouragement for us in seeing a sovereign God at work, at work providentially, at work even in and through the evil that men do. Yeah, I think that the yes and no way of answering that question is is very helpful because there is a sense in which all human death is always tragic. You know, when someone who is made in the image of God, when that life is taken deliberately in murder, that is always a tragic thing. Um, And the sadness and and, and the family grief that that causes. Um, And particularly when you come to talk about contemporary martyrs in the church across the world, you know, we never want to downplay the sadness and the suffering yeah, that that comes with martyrdom. It's very real. It's very hard, um, but the way that this story is presented, you know, the 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 aftermath of it that Kenneth has just drawn out there. But even within the story itself, you know, it doesn't read like a tragedy. It leads almost like a triumph. Stephen's face is like an angel. He's given this platform to share the gospel. When he's stoned, it says he's full of the Holy Spirit. And then he has this vision of Jesus standing in glory, almost welcoming him into heaven. And then he dies with forgiveness on his lips. So it does read more like a triumph than a tragedy. So I think we have to always be so aware of the sadness and grief and hardship that comes with martyrdom. But as Kenneth says, within God's providence, he always works for good. And he's always there with us in the suffering and the tragedies. Uh, and they're never wasted. They're never irrelevant in God's plan. Mm. <clears throat> I've always, I've always found that image of Jesus standing to welcome Stephen quite beautiful, especially since Jesus is often depicted as being seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, I'd like to bring this back round to today, from the first century to the twenty-first. Nowadays, thousands of Christians are killed for their faith every year, and as I said, some of those stories are profiled in our current magazine, which is available on our website, um, if people want to take a look. So what parallels or what connections do we see between Stephen and Christian martyrs today? Well, the obvious connection, and in many ways, I guess this is what we've been talking about, is the witness to Jesus, that is, to who he is. 
as the rightful Lord of all uh, and to what he has done to reconcile us to God. In short, that he is the only Saviour and Lord. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Um, You've already mentioned the current edition of our quarterly magazine, Voice, Um, And I think of that edition, I think of some of the accounts there of of Christians, for example, in India, who have been killed in recent months. Why? Killed for maintaining a Christian witness. Killed either for refusing to stop witnessing or for refusing to renounce Christ as the only saviour and Lord. In other words, the very same reasons that we find Stephen here martyred in Acts chapter 7. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, as Ken's pointed out, martyrdom, you know, it continues to be part of the story of the church. It's not an anomaly of the first century. And sometimes in the West, we've maybe been used to thinking about that idea of martyrdom as a first century phenomenon. Uh, but actually, in terms of the raw numbers, when you look at the church today, you know, more Christians have been martyred across the world in the last few decades than they ever were in the, the early part of the church history. Um, you know, I was reading a report just the other day from our partner who works with North Koreans, and he was saying that since they started that ministry 18 years ago, they've lost 36 members of their team, all people who have been killed as martyrs. So that just shows how, how very real and current an issue this is for the church in so many parts of the world. That being said, uh, for Christians in the UK, this can feel quite removed from our own experience. Um, although you've just said that there are more martyrs today than there were in the first century. How does this relate to us in the UK? How should we think about it and respond to the things that we hear about that are happening in um, North Korea, Nigeria, India and other places? Yeah, I think you're right. And and I think we need to be aware of that, that, that persecution, martyrdom really can seem like it's very far away from us living as Christians in the West. And that's something that we have to grapple with. It, it, it's not something that we can just pretend isn't there. It does feel far away from us. Um, but I think just to, to draw again on what Kenneth said uh, just a minute ago, you know, why are Christians killed today? Well, it's for the same reason that Stephen was killed, because of their testimony about Jesus, because they're identified with him, because they bear his name, because they belong to his kingdom. And when you frame it like that, then you see that there is an immediate continuity between them and between us because as Christians living in any part of the world we're all called to have a testimony about Jesus we're all identified with him we all belong to his kingdom and that is a calling which is never risk-free you know Jesus himself is so realistic and transparent about that in the New Testament so Matthew 16 for example if anyone comes after me eh, let them deny themselves take up their cross and follow me John 15 if they persecuted me they'll persecute you Matthew 10, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Um, It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who summarised Jesus' uh, calling like this. He said, when Christ calls a man or any person, he bids him come and die. You know, it's as stark as that. Uh, So following Jesus is really a very serious thing and there are always risks involved in that and that applies to anyone regardless of where they are. And actually when you think about it, no one ever knows that they're going to be a martyr until it actually happens. Up until that point, they're just being a faithful witness. And so I think that means that we shouldn't see ourselves as radically different from the martyrs. Um, 
Now that said, as I mentioned before, it's clear that we are um, a lot less likely to be killed for our faith in the UK than a fellow Christian is in northern Nigeria today. Uh, but the important thing to realise is that they are not a different type of Christian than us. They don't belong to the persecuted church as if we are somehow part of the non-persecuted church. We know that there's only one church. So we are we are of the same type as them. We stand in solidarity with them as fellow witnesses to Jesus. And, and we simply need to live in a way that's true to that in the time and the place where God has called us to be. Um, so to, just to summarise that then, how does this apply to Christians in the UK? Well, one, we need to be faithful witnesses to Jesus where we are. Two, we shouldn't be surprised if we face some kind of opposition because of that. And three, we need to make sure that we see ourselves as one and the same with those who are killed for their faith in Nigeria or India or wherever else in the world it is. None of us know exactly where following Jesus will lead, neither did Stephen, but it's not our prerogative to know everything. Our calling is simply to testify to Jesus in our time and place and to trust that because of him, not even death can separate us from the love of God. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 10, Jesus tells the church in Smyrna, Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Thank you so much for listening to Release International's Voice podcast. Please do subscribe through your favourite podcast app and stay connected to the voice of persecuted Christians. There are many other ways you can get involved. If you don't already receive our free quarterly magazine or prayer alert emails, then please do subscribe on our website at releaseinternational.org forward slash podcast. When you do that for a limited time, we'll send you a free book, Imprisoned with ISIS by Peter Yasik. This is an amazing story of how God sustained Release International's associate ministry worker Peter through his 445-day imprisonment in Sudan. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Remember those who are in prison as if you were in there together with them and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Do not abandon them.